Hi, I'm Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Storylanes podcast, the podcast where every week we do a deep dive into a movie or TV episode. And to go along with this analysis, every week I publish a graph of the story we're covering on the Storylanes.com website, a graph I produced while doing the analysis. You don't need to look at that graph, the podcast is standalone. But if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at Storylanes.com. This week we're doing Little Women, the version from 2019. Little Women is a period drama based on the Louisa May Alcott book. Written and directed by Greta Gerwig and starring Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern, and Timothy Chalamet. As usual, this podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. So go watch Little Women if you want to listen to this podcast. It's a terrific movie. And hey, it got Oscar nominations for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay, so it's not just me saying that. Now clearly, Little Women is a little different from the kinds of movies we've covered before. Why, the debtor's lane in this week's analysis has only one name in it, and it's a sad death from disease, not an exciting death from violence. But aside from the fact that I like this movie a lot, Little Women is a fascinating structure. And at times it gets really meta, and I love meta. And there's even some fascinating craft touches here, some of which I've already stolen for use in another screenplay. All of which is to say, even if a period drama about women isn't your cup of tea, I think this movie makes for a terrific study. There's a lot to learn here. And I should say, this kind of movie is definitely my cup of tea. But then, I like just about any kind of movie. And I hope to cover a whole lot of very different movies in this podcast. I think there's good things to learn in lots of places. There's certainly good things to learn in Little Women. Little Women is the story of the four March sisters, Joe, Amy, Meg, and Beth. The film follows their lives during the 1860s, and it covers two distinct periods. Their later childhood takes place in Concord, Massachusetts during the Civil War, and their young adulthood is set in various locations in the late 1860s. It's kind of hard to summarize this film in one paragraph. A lot happens, but most of it is the day-to-day stuff of life. The sisters fall in love, get married, and in one case die, and they have various short-term conflicts among them. It's a movie about living lives, little victories, little defeats, little conflicts, and thus, little women. But the movie does something quite interesting, and here is where I should make a confession. I have never read the book Little Women. I don't believe I've seen any of the other film adaptations of this story, and there have been many. So I can't really speak to how the movie adapts the book, or whether a given piece of this story is from the book or only in the movie. I'm flying a little blind here, and I hope you'll forgive me if I make some glaring mistakes. Though drop a note and let me know if I do, I'm always willing to learn. That said, here's what I find so interesting about this movie. The A-plot of the movie is about writing the book that the movie is based on. This is an extremely meta movie. And there are times in this movie where what we see is clearly not the reality of these characters, but rather what happens inside the book that is being written in the course of the movie. We'll talk about this later, but it's something that I believe makes this movie a fascinating watch, and the screenplay a fascinating read. And let's talk about one aspect of the screenplay that's key to everything that I'm going to say about it. There are two distinct timelines in this film. One starts in 1861, when the March girls are young. The screenplay refers to this timeline as the past, and so shall I. 
The other starts in 1868 when the March girls are young adults. This timeline is the present. Of course, that's the present of the film. 1868 is not our present. But for the rest of this podcast, we will refer to that 1868 timeline as the present. Scenes from the two timelines are interspersed, but each timeline proceeds chronologically, with one possible exception which I'll get to later. In the film, the two periods are visually distinct, with the past having a higher saturation with brighter colors and a golden hue, while the present is colder, more blue, and a little washed out. This is intentional. The past is seen through a golden hue of memory. The present lives in the cold light of day. And this leads to one of the unusual typographical conventions in this screenplay. All the stuff in the past timeline is printed in red. By contrast, the present timeline is printed in the usual black and white. So in the screenplay, you can see immediately what is present and what is past. I've never seen a screenplay do something like this before, but it is effective and it's interesting to see. There is another unique typographical aspect of this script. It uses a special technique to identify when one character's lines interrupt another. In this film, characters often talk over each other. They are so full of life and know each other so well that they don't need to finish their sentences. The listener just knows what the speaker will say and often starts talking before the first speaker finishes. That's fair enough and something that happens in a lot of movies, and certainly a lot in real life. But what this screenplay does differently is it indicates exactly when the second person starts talking. Gerwig describes the method of doing this in an introductory paragraph to the script. It reads, Where there is simultaneous or quick dialogue in the script, there is a slash in the middle of the speaker's dialogue representing where the next actor should begin. The following actor's line will be started with a slash to indicate that it is interrupting another line. Check out the screenplay, it's pretty neat the way it does this, and you pretty quickly get used to it. I really like this method. In fact, I like it so much that I've already used it in a script of my own. I even stole Gerwig's note describing the technique. Sorry, Greta, I hope you're okay with that. And I like the result. If you watch the movie, you see how fast-paced the dialogue is, and how well it overlaps. It's one of the things that stood out for me the first time I saw this movie, even before I knew how Gerwig had specified it in the script. Now, Gerwig did not invent this method, and she doesn't claim to have done so. I've heard interviews in which she says that she first saw this used in the text of some stage plays. But this is the first time I've seen it used in a screenplay. Now, as I've already mentioned, the structure of this screenplay is a little odd. So the structure of this podcast episode is also going to be a little odd. Rather than diving into the main structure of the screenplay, I'm going to start with subplots. There are a lot of subplots in this film. In fact, you could say that the whole film is just subplots. Lots of subplots, each of which is a story about the events in the lives of these women. Romance, successful and failed. Friendship. Marriage. Death. It's all here. There's even a subplot about buying fabric to make a dress. Now, if I tried to set up a separate lane in the story lane's analysis for each subplot, I'd drive myself crazy, and the resulting diagram would be impossible to follow and not terribly useful. And I'm certainly not going to try to talk about all those subplots in this podcast. What I will do instead is focus on the character arcs of each of the four sisters, because most of the subplots are encompassed in those arcs. I've added a lane for each of these arcs. 
There's one additional subplot that I'll discuss afterward, but only because I think it's the main plot of the film and merits special attention. In as long as I'm talking about their character arcs, I'll introduce the sisters and the other key characters in this film. So, the character arcs. Let's take a look. First, recognize that two of the four sisters have bigger arcs than the others. Those are Joe and Amy. Joe is the protagonist of this film. She's a tomboy, obsessed with writing, and has a fiery personality. Setting aside her writing for the moment, because we'll talk about that soon, at a high level, Joe's arc is all about growing up and learning what she wants in life. Joe starts out selfish and fun-loving, ready to jump into a fight with Amy at any moment. But when Beth gets sick while Marmee is in Washington tending to Mr. March, Joe steps up to take care of her, and in doing so, she gains maturity. This continues when in the present timeline, Joe comes home from New York to tend to Beth. Once again, Beth is sick. Once again, Joe steps up as the primary caretaker. Once again, she gains wisdom in doing so. And what she learns this time is that she is lonely. She needs someone in her life. She regrets turning down Laurie's proposal, which is something we see in the past timeline. And when she finds that she has lost Laurie for good, she is distraught. So she is finally persuaded to marry Friedrich and start a school for children, thus giving a happy ending to her arc. Though, of course, that's not necessarily her true arc. But we'll look at Joe the writer shortly, because Joe and the Joe the writer plot is a little different than the Joe and the Joe the wife plot. Oh boy, we're going to have to dive into that. I promise it won't be long now. But first, let's jump to the second sister with a significant arc. That's Amy. Amy starts out a spoiled brat, but a practical one, the most practical and worldly of these four sisters. This is in part due to her time spent with her Aunt March. From Aunt March, Amy learns that she must marry Rich. It's the only thing that will save the March family fortunes. She lays it all out in the strongest feminist statement in this film. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. So she is resolved to marry wealthy Fred Vaughn. And what is it about Louisa May Alcott that these bland and largely forgettable love interests are all named variations of Fred? There's Fred Vaughn, who Amy ultimately rejects, and Friedrich Baer, who Joe marries in the Joe the Wife plot and rejects in the Joe the Writer plot. I suppose we should count ourselves lucky that Meg doesn't marry a Fred, but instead marries the more originally named John. But when it comes right down to it and Amy sees an opportunity to marry for love, she turns down Fred and marries Laurie. So ultimately, she rejects Aunt March's cynical world where she must marry only for money. Of course, Laurie is also wealthy, if not so wealthy as Fred, so this is not exactly a great sacrifice on Amy's part. Still, we should give her some credit for this bit of personal growth, for marrying the rich guy that she loves and not the rich guy who is only rich. The other big part of Amy's arc is her ultimate rejection of the life of an artist. In this film, where a commitment to art is the key value, this marks Amy as less than Joe. In all ways, she compromises. Her love isn't as pure as Meg's because Laurie isn't exactly a pauper. And her art certainly isn't as pure as Joe's because Amy is too willing to give it up when she finds she's not a genius. After all, she's taken a few art classes. Shouldn't she be at the top of the field by now? 
Yeah, Amy, that's rarely how it works. Amy is also the voice of feminism in this film. She's the one who gives a great speech about how limited a woman's life is, and she's the one who stands up for Joe writing about their lives, about the importance of women's lives. Next we have Meg. Lively Meg, popular Meg, beautiful Meg. Young Meg has a rather vivid character arc. She loves fancy things, loves being the belle of the ball. But the good and kind John Brooke wins her heart by his kind service to her family, and she marries him in spite of his poverty, a choice which Aunt March derides, and one which parallels Marmy's choice to marry the poor preacher Mr. March, and which she seems to regret, as shown when she says after one of Aunt March's digs at Meg, And you're not entirely wrong. <laughs> what a thing to say at a wedding. Now, of course, Meg in the present barely has an arc at all. She buys some silk for a dress, regrets spending all that money, returns the silk, and appreciates her husband for his goodness. Not exactly thrilling. Still, Meg gets more of a character arc than Beth. Young Beth's arc is, she's nice, she plays the piano, she makes friends with an old man, she gets sick, she gets better. Still, that's better than her arc in the present. She gets sick, she dies, she's remembered when someone plays her piano. But there are two other things worth noting about Beth. First, her arc is not that she is nice and she gets sick, it's that being nice leads to her getting sick. When Marmy is away tending to the father, Beth is the only one of the sisters who remembers to care for the poor Hummel family, and that's where she catches the scarlet fever that almost kills her in the past and that weakens her heart and ultimately kills her in the present. I'm not sure what message Little Women is trying to give here. That being kind and charitable will kill you? Certainly the other March sisters do better by being selfish. Second, Beth serves a key point in the Joe is Writer plot, because she is Joe's muse. That ultimately is Beth's function in this film. She certainly doesn't do much else. So yeah, Beth's primary purpose is to have her death inspire Joe. I guess that means I'm accusing Louisa May Alcott of fridging. Now, some of the other key characters. There's Marmy, the girl's mother. She's generous, a bit bohemian, and kind, but with a fire that she generally keeps under wraps. There's Aunt March, a rich spinster and mean old thing. There's Laurie, the directionless but likable neighbor boy. And there's his grandfather, Mr. Lawrence, a nice old man. There are a few more characters around, but none really leap off the screen. And now let's talk about the Joe is Writer plot because I think this is the key plot of the film, the plot that gives the movie its spine and that makes it so damned interesting. Essentially, Little Women the Movie is the story of how Joe writes Little Women the Novel, and the novel is the book on which the film that we're watching is based. Joe, in this case, is clearly a stand-in for Louisa May Alcott, the author of the book, which is fair because in the novel, Joe was a stand-in for Louisa May Alcott, and the other March girls were Alcott's sisters. The key character arc of the film is how Joe goes from a nervous young woman selling a pulp story to being the confident author of Little Women. Accordingly, the teaser of the film is a short scene where Joe sells that pulp story. Everything else proceeds from there. The correspondence of what we see in the film to what is in the book is not entirely clear. The past, the happy memories of youth, is clearly part of the book. Everything is presented in a rosy and literary glow. It's all happy memories with all conflicts quickly resolved and all problems finding happy resolutions. But the parts in the present are a little less certain. As presented, they are part of the meta-story, the story in which Joe writes the novel of their lives. 
but the story of the book clearly includes them as well. After all, the ending of the book within the film is Joe marrying Friedrich, and that rises from the scenes in the meta-story where Joe meets Friedrich, Amy marries Laurie, Meg has children, and Beth is dead. So it can be a little confusing to figure out what's in Joe's book and what is not, if you care to worry about such things. Aside from that, this plot has several key beats. Joe sells a story to Dashwood. Friedrich tells Joe she's a good writer. But her stories aren't really very good because she is writing on the wrong subjects. She needs to write something that comes from within her. He's right, of course, but Joe does not take it well. And for a while, after this, Joe gives up writing. We next see scenes of Joe in the past developing as a writer. She writes the plays that the girls perform for neighboring kids. She works on a novel, a novel that Amy burns up in a successful attempt to hurt Joe. Because Joe cares about her writing more than anything. And now we get to a key point on page 71 of the screenplay. In the present timeline, ever since Joe left New York, she gave up writing. But the dying Beth asks Joe to write something for her. It's Beth that encourages Joe to write. But this time, Joe doesn't write her usual bombastic adventure tale. She writes about their family. She writes one of the stories that we've seen from the March girls' childhoods. And Beth is charmed. So Beth has become Joe's muse. She has led Joe to write the thing that Joe should write, this story that we're watching. And after performing that major service to the story, Beth has fulfilled her purpose and has nothing left to do but die, which she does just five pages later. But it takes a little while for Joe to follow her muse. First she buries Beth, then she pines after Laurie, then she decisively loses him. Only then is she driven to an extreme of loneliness, so lonely that, after Beth's death, she bonds with Mr. Lawrence, perhaps the most lonely figure in this movie. Aunt March is also all alone, but it suits her. So now, as a way to escape from her lonely existence, in a nice little montage, Joe finally sits down and writes Little Women. Wouldn't it be nice if writing a novel only took a montage? To everyone's surprise, Aunt March leaves Joe her house in her will. When talking to her sisters about this, Amy asks what Joe is writing. Joe is nervous to confess that she is writing about their childhoods. But Amy proves to be the most encouraging of this. She is the one who says this subject has value, that writing this book will help give it value. It's a strong feminist statement, which by this point we've come to expect from Amy. But it supports Joe, which we don't expect from Amy. Amy has been Joe's antagonist through much of this film. Now she has become Joe's strongest ally. This is a key moment in both character arcs and a key moment in their relationship. And it's an interesting twist, given that Meg used to be Joe's ally. But Meg is largely a non-entity by this point. Joe then meekly sends the book to Dashwood to publish. At first he refuses it. But after his daughters are engrossed by the book, he agrees to take it. And now Joe fully grows into her own power. She negotiates strongly over terms for selling the book. Most importantly, she keeps the copyright, refusing to sell it to Dashwood. And by doing so, she cements her future fortune. Which, we should note, is exactly what Louisa May Alcott did. Finally, the book is published. We see the process of printing the book, of binding it. And in the last image of the movie, we see the published novel. The Joe as writer plot has come to a climax.
But there's one odd aspect of this finale, and that's the fact that this movie has two separate incompatible endings. In the Joe is Writer plot, Joe never marries but instead publishes a novel, and it's implied that she will go on to write more books, which no doubt will also be successes. She has achieved what she wanted from the beginning, to be a self-supporting author. Marriage is superfluous. But that ending would never do in the novel. In the very first scene, Dashwood tells Joe that the protagonist of her stories, if they are women, must end up either married or dead. And when negotiating over the sale of the book, he insists upon it. If you decide to end your delightful book with your heroine a spinster, no one will buy it. It won't be worth printing. So Joe, the writer, writes an ending to her novel in which Joe, the character, marries Friedrich. And that Joe, the fictional Joe, gives up writing to found a school and live happily ever after as a married schoolmistress. We actually see that ending, but it's shown in the glowing tones that we've come to associate with the scenes from the earlier timeline, the happy rosy scenes that are a combination of Joe's memories and scenes from her novel. Thus we know that this version of Joe's story is fiction, a fiction that exists only within the covers of her novel, in a fiction she, that she only writes to sell books, because, as she notes, mimicking an Amy line from earlier, well, I suppose marriage has always been an economic proposition, even in fiction. I'll also note the intercutting between author Joe negotiating with Dashwood and fictional Joe living out her fairy tale ending is wonderfully done with author Joe later watching her book being published even as the other ending plays out. It's a terrific way to provide both the ending from the original novel and an ending that feels more real for Joe, to become a successful author even if she never marries. Now as I said, I haven't read the original novel, but I have heard several interviews with Greta Gerwig about this movie, and she said that Alcott originally wanted Joe to remain single, but her publisher insisted on the marriage, just as Dashwood does here. So Gerwig is faithful both to the original novel and to the author's intent. It's a nice little balancing act and quite well done indeed. And so there's the key plot of Little Women. It's a movie about making itself. I absolutely love this kind of thing. And other than the works of Charlie Kaufman, most notably his script for adaptation, I don't know of any other movies that do such a nice little job of being about their own creation. So those are the various plots and subplots of Little Women. Now, how is this all structured? Well, this was a tricky one. When I first sat down to analyze the plot, I didn't see any clear mileposts. Part of that is that the film is such a tapestry, with four major characters each with their own plots, and with a variety of other subplots popping up and then quickly resolving. With all those subplots, it's hard to point to a single structure that applies to the entire movie. But on further study, I now believe this film has four acts and a teaser. The teaser is that first scene, the one where Joe sells a story to Mr. Dashwood. It identifies Joe's writing as the central plot of the film, and Joe is the central character. Then we're in Act One, a nice traditional setup act, and we meet the March Girls. What follows is a sequence in which we meet each of the girls in the present. First Joe and her life in a New York boarding house. Then Amy and her adventures in Paris, where we also meet Laurie. Then Meg in her purchase of expensive cloth for a dress, cloth that she can little afford. And finally Beth playing her piano and seeming ill. And then one more glimpse at Joe encountering Friedrich at a performance of Twelfth Night and the sequence is done. 
Note that Joe gets both the opening and closing scenes of this introductory sequence, cementing her place as the central of the sisters. And, of course, Joe was the only one of the four to appear in the teaser. But Amy gets a substantial scene as well, one that introduces the key supporting characters of Laurie and Aunt March. She's not far behind Joe in importance. Meg gets a briefer scene, and one that's not as complex as the others. And Beth gets the smallest scene of all, one that doesn't even have any dialogue. Then we have another sequence where we meet the girls in the past, an energetic bunch full of conflict and love, and we see how Joe first meets Laurie. Here's the family at its best, but still just in setup and introduction mode. And finally, we get scenes in the present of Joe and Amy showing how complicated their lives have become. Amy has an angry confrontation with a drunken Laurie at a party. Joe gets serious criticism from Friedrich. Then she gets a telegram that Beth is sick, leading her to leave New York for home. And that's where the act ends. We've met the characters in both past and present, established the dual timelines, and introduced the main challenge of the two central sisters, Joe and Amy. And Joe is now on her way home. Act 2 is interesting, and I think it's the source of a lot of my confusion about the structure of this film. It contains some distinct sequences, but they are largely standalone stories of the marches in the past. These are separated by collections of scenes from past and present that push along the various subplots, but don't add up to significant sequences. So there's some movement in the main plots, but there's also a lot of separate sequences that feel like short films or short stories. The first of these opens the act. It's Christmas morning with the marches. And as it happens, this is the opening scene from the novel, the real novel Little Women. We're never told what the opening scene of Joe's Little Women is. Here we see a nice series of events where Marmy asks the girls to give their Christmas breakfast to a poor family. And their good deed is rewarded because their wealthy neighbor, Mr. Lawrence, sends along a luxurious breakfast to make up for their loss. That's followed by a collection of individual scenes that don't really add up to a sequence. In the present, Joe comes back to her hometown to tend to Beth. In the past, the girls banter their way through a walk through town. Joe tends to her Aunt March. Amy gets into trouble at school. Mr. Lawrence invites Beth to play his piano. Meg meets John Brooke. The girls invite Laurie to join their amateur theater troupe. All just a collection of little moments in their lives. Then comes a longer sequence from the past, another one of those sequences that feels like a short film. Joe and Amy have a fierce fight in which Amy, in an effort to hurt Joe, burns up Joe's draft novel. Joe is incredibly angry at Amy, an anger that lasts until Amy falls through the ice when skating. Joe rescues Amy, then, shocked at Amy's near death, feels remorse at her anger. She shares this remorse with Marmy, who confides with Joe that she gets angry too. Joe resolves to get better at handling her anger. Note how complete this feels. It could be a short film or a short story. It has its own complete structure, and it's never again referenced in the film. There's a few other similar sequences that follow, and some scenes from the present that push forward the plots. And that's the feel of this act, short stories told about the past, interspersed with short scenes in the present that push forward the subplots. The feel is that we're seeing separate stories from the past showing significant events, but present events are not as well tied together. So why does the film have these long past sequences without corresponding long present ones? I think there's a couple of reasons. 
First, it's a necessary result of the fact that the girls are all living together and sharing a life in the past, while in the present they have largely gone their separate ways. While the choices that the girls make in the present affect each other, they rarely interact closely. Meg's marital challenges don't involve her sisters. Joe's writing is a solo endeavor. Most of present Amy's story happens an ocean away in Europe. The one exception is Beth, who is central to Joe's story. Joe tends to Beth as she is dying, and Beth becomes Joe's muse. And for a significant part of the film, most of the time we see present Joe, it's with Beth. By contrast, in the past, the girls are bouncing all over each other. With the exception of Meg's adventures in Boston, one of those short story sequences, the girls are all a major presence in each other's lives. And so the various plots of their lives more closely interact, and there's more of a chance for large sequences to build. The other thing that this accomplishes is that it makes the past events feel more literary. They come together in what amounts to episodic chapters that are largely standalone. This sets up the feel that these past sequences are part of a book, the book that Joe eventually writes. Other sequences follow. Meg goes to Boston for a ball. Joe sells her hair to help Marmy get to Washington to tend their father. All quite standalone, nice little events that add up to a pretty picture of a happy childhood and that reflect on bigger plots, but mostly just illuminate character. But then we get to Act 3 and we're back in the world of plot. A number of things happen in this act to create a continuous story. The central one is Beth's illness. This plays out in both present and past. Beth becomes ill in the past, but she recovers. She is ill again in the present, and this time she dies. These illnesses are intercut. We also see Joe's growing isolation and loneliness, and the culmination of the romance plots, Amy with Laurie and Meg with John Brooke. Even then, these sequences are intercut with scenes from other periods, scenes from other stories. Though there is a closer relationship between these stories, as when Joe decides to accept Laurie while across the pond Laurie and Amy decide to marry. At the end of this act, the arcs of Meg, Amy, and Beth are largely resolved. Meg and Amy in marriage, Beth in death. Just like Mr. Dashwood predicted at the beginning. Joe, by contrast, is left at her low point, alone, isolated, feeling lonely and without purpose. And Act 4 is all about resolving Joe's story. Joe finally finds her path as an author writing about her family. And she follows that path. She writes the book and sells it to her publisher. And even the scenes from the past that appear in this act are all part of the ending that Dashwood insists be added to the book, Joe's marriage to Friedrich. So after all we've seen before, this ending act is most tightly focused on the book. But we also see another resolution to Joe's story. And in this other version of the story, Joe marries Friedrich, abandons writing, and opens a school. Now the way this is crafted is fascinating. In the marriage story, we have an interesting moment, the moment where the past and present timelines come together. When Friedrich appears at the March house, it's treated as a part of the present timeline. But when he leaves the house, the chase after Friedrich morphs into part of the past timeline. Meanwhile, in the present, Joe negotiates with Dashwood, a negotiation that in the script is clearly after the Friedrich chase. Though this is not as obvious in the film, but the dates of the slug line show that it's the case in the script. Now, at some point, the Friedrich sequence becomes part of the past, and we also learn that it is part of the novel and not part of Joe's actual life. This cements the idea that the past is the novel while the present is reality. And in the script, these last couple of scenes in the Friedrich-Joe romance are presented in red text, indicating that they are part of the novel in the past. In fact, the script goes so far as to say in the slug line of that scene that 
The present is now the past, or maybe fiction. In, in the film, these scenes are shot with a brightly colored, highly saturated style that were used for the past scenes. I've already mentioned how much I love the way this film ends, how it appeals to my love of meta. But the details of how it's done, the craft that goes into these scenes, is terrific. The morphing from present to past to fiction, all intercut with present scenes where Dashwood tells Joe that she needs to have a romantic ending, cements this meaning. It's quite well done. So that's my analysis of the structure of this complicated movie. A teaser and four acts. The teaser introduces Joe as writer. The first act introduces the characters in present and past, and gives the first hints of their present problems. The second act has distinct sequences set in the past that tell standalone stories, sequences that alternate with scenes that push forward the various subplots in the present. The third act resolves the stories of three of the sisters, focusing largely on the mirrored stories of Beth's illnesses, ending in recovery in the past and death in the present. But act three also marries off Amy and Meg. And then in the fourth act, Joe writes the novel that we've just seen, and we see both of her endings, author Joe and wife Joe. An interesting and solid structure. Now before I look at Little Women through the lens of other story models, let me take a moment to discuss all of the parallels that I see in this film. Because there's a number of cases where events in the present and past parallel each other. Generally, the events in the past have a rosy glow to them with happy endings. By contrast, the present world is a colder one, and things are not so easily resolved. I've added a lane to the story lane's analysis identifying some of these parallels, but let me point some out. The biggest is the resolution of Beth's illness. In the past, she recovers and all is good in the world. But in the present, she dies, which plunges Joe into deep loneliness and her low point in the film. But there are other parallels between present and past. For example, early in the film there are two back-to-back -back sequences. In the present, Joe fights with Friedrich, a sequence that ends when she receives a letter with the bad news that Beth is ill. In the past, the Christmas morning sequence ends when they receive a happy Christmas letter from their father. So both sequences end with letters, but the letter in the past is joyful while the one in the present is ominous. A little later, on page 36 of the script, in the present Joe walks alone through the empty streets of Concord. Immediately following is a scene in the past where all the March girls walk those same streets, only now the streets are full and the girls together. The contrast between lonely Joe and Joe surrounded by friends and family is clear. And we get the idea that somehow it is Joe's lonely walk through town that reminds her of that past walk. Going home is one of the things that inspires her to write about her childhood. And so this parallel becomes a key plot point in the Joe as writer plot. Similarly, a little later we see the Lawrence house in the past, full of family, friends, and life, followed by a view of the Lawrence house in the present, empty and forlorn. This happens over and over, and it happens with all the characters. In the past, Meg is happy, surrounded by wealth at a Boston ball. In the present, Meg can't afford cloth for a new dress. There's a sad funeral in the present, paired with a happy wedding in the past. In the past, Joe rejects Laurie's proposal so she can go off on the grand adventure that is life. In the present, a more experienced Joe regrets that refusal because now she is so lonely. The adventure has not been all that she wanted. This is nicely done, setting up the differences between the happy past and the challenging present. Everything is more complicated when the girls grow up and when we're not watching things through the lens of happy memory. It's another nice use of those dual timelines.
and one of the things that ties the scenes between the timelines together. Now, how do our other screenwriting models do with Little Women? First off, if you don't know three-act structure or Save the Cat or The Hero's Journey, you may want to listen to episode one of this podcast where I introduce them. Otherwise, the following may be a bit confusing. Back now? Good. Three-act structure has some issues here. You can identify the three acts fairly easily, just merge my acts two and three into one act. So we have the following acts. Act one, we meet the marches in past and present. Act two, life progresses, culminating in Beth's illness and death and the resolution of Meg's and Amy's arcs. Act three, Joe writes her book and the movie has its dual endings. The inciting incident is fairly clear here. In Joe's original meeting with Mr. Dashwood, he tells her that he will consider more of her stories. Tell her to make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Or dead, either way. But for the life of me, I can't identify a clear and traditional midpoint in this film. I don't know that there really is one. I do have three midpoint candidates. First, there's Joe's talk with Marmy about her anger. This occurs on page 56, which is about the right page. But nothing really changes much. It's dramatic, but there's little lasting effect. Second, there's Beth starting to get ill. This happens on page 79 of 122 pages of the script. Certainly not at the middle of the film, more like two-thirds of the way in. But it does shift the action into a new mode. It's what I identified as my break between Acts 2 and 3. So this is probably my best candidate midpoint. Finally, there is Beth's death, which also leads to a big shift in the story. But this is on page 89, way late. In fact, from a three-act structure perspective, I think this might be considered the break into Act 3, even though I mark that as later. So all in all, three-act structure doesn't seem as clear a model for this film as it has been in others that we've examined. How does Save the Cat do? Surprisingly well, actually. Better than I expected. Sure, it has the same issues as three-act structure. There's no clear midpoint here. And there's not really a debate unless you want to count Joe's time when she gives up writing. But that's fairly late in the film, certainly a lot later than Snyder's debate section, and it doesn't really feel like the hero showing doubt before accepting the adventure. It's more the hero having abandoned something crucial, something that she later returns to. But a lot of other of Snyder's beats are here. There is a fairly clear statement of theme. Friedrich tells Joe, No one gets ink stains like you, just out of a desire for money. Which speaks to Joe's obsession with writing, the theme of the film. There's clearly a period where the bad guys close in, though in this case the bad guy is Beth's illness. Beth's death is an all-is-lost moment, and Joe's growing loneliness is her dark night of the soul. And the beginning and final images are particularly interesting. The beginning image is the meek Joe entering the publishing office hoping to sell her story. We get a good look at her before she has undergone this author's journey, unconfident, writing stuff that's okay but not that special. This is certainly her starting point. But just as this film has two endings, the endings for Joe the writer and for Joe the wife, there are two final images. The first is the Joe the wife image, where we see a happy Joe surrounded by family and children at her school. But that's not the last final image, and it's not really the true one. The true final image is the last thing we see on screen. Joe's book, published and looking beautiful. This is the climax of the story, the story about writing this story. The hero's journey is also remarkably accurate for this film, though again there are some interesting twists. Take the question of the mentor. Friedrich is first introduced about the time we'd expect Joe to meet her mentor. 
and he serves as a mentor. He encourages her with the gift of Shakespeare, then gives her solid advice when he tells her that the mindless adventure stories she's writing aren't good. But it isn't Friedrich's advice that Joe really needs. It's Beth who gets Joe to write again and who inspires her to write about her family. And it's Amy who tells Joe that writing about family and life make them important. Joe's true mentors are her sisters. So perhaps it's appropriate that she only ends up with Friedrich in the fictional ending. There is another character who has a mentor in this film, and that is Amy. Aunt March becomes her mentor when she schools Amy of the importance of marrying rich. Amy takes this lesson to heart, though eventually she moves away from it when she marries for love, though still marrying rich. It is interesting how key a character Amy becomes. It's not quite a dual protagonist situation. Joe is clearly still the more important of the two characters. But Amy is a close second. Now some of the later hero's journey beats apply as well. There's the approach to the inmost cave where the hero nears her goal. In this case, it's when Joe first writes about her family. By doing so, she's found her subject and gotten closer to becoming an author. There's her ordeal, which is dealing with Beth's death. There's the moment where Joe sees the light at the end of the tunnel when she starts writing Little Women. There's the challenge she encounters on the road back, her negotiations with Dashwood, negotiations that require her to create the false ending. In a way, creating that false ending is how Joe overcomes this last obstacle. Another interesting meta touch. And of course, Joe's prize is the published book. Take a step back and Joe is clearly the author hero who has created the story that we have watched. There is certainly something heroic, even godly, about this journey, even if it doesn't involve fighting monsters. So while there are certainly variations and twists, it's curious to see how well Save the Cat and the Hero's Journey apply here. Given how complex this screenplay is, that surprised me. Now I should step back a moment and note something. In coming into this project, I was skeptical of both Save the Cat and the Hero's Journey. As models to use when constructing a story, they seemed far too formulaic to me. Surely story was too complex to be captured in simple lists of a dozen or so beats. But seeing how well they and three-act structure with a midpoint apply to many of these movies has made me reconsider. If those models fit this well for such an unconventional film as Little Women, perhaps there's more to them than meets the eye. It's something that I'm going to have to think about. Now, I still don't think a screenwriter should blindly follow these formulas. Although there's been some strong matches between these models and the films we've looked at, I've yet to see a perfect match. The closest we've come has been three-act model with a midpoint in Alien, but there's almost always some beats missing from the hero's journey or from Snyder's model. And I still find Snyder's prescribed page numbers to be ridiculous, seeming to fit these screenplays only by occasional coincidence. But perhaps there is something to those lists of beats and the high-level structure that they represent. And perhaps for some film projects, following some of these models can be useful, although story should always drive structure and not the other way around. So I shall keep these models in my back pocket, one of the many conceptual tools I use when writing a script. I now think there is more value to them than I did previously. That's a big thing I've learned through making this podcast and I suppose I'd point to this as an important lesson to the screenwriter. So we're nearing the end. Do I like this movie? Yes, I like it a lot. I love the meta aspects of it, and I really enjoy the complexity of the script. I also admire how Gerwig managed to stay true to the book while also staying true to the author's desires. She walked a hard and narrow path, and she walked it well. 
Do I see any problems here? Probably just things that were present in the original. It would be nice if Beth and Meg had better arcs, especially in the present timeline. Even their past arcs are a bit lacking, Beth's especially, but Meg's romance with John Brooks seems to be largely played out in the background of other actions. And Amy's marriage to Laurie isn't exactly the strong declaration of an adherence to true love. After all, Laurie is fairly well healed. It would be nice to see Amy take a stronger action with stronger consequences to resolve her plotline. And there's something redundant in the lesson that Amy learns. We already saw Meg marrying for love. Do we really need to see Amy learn that same lesson? But those are not major reservations, and I really did like this movie. So, let's go with three screenwriting lessons that I take from this film. First, I very much like how Gerwig uses screenplay typography to handle quick overlapping dialogue. This is one of the things that struck me on my first viewing of Little Women. How good is the overlapping dialogue and the feel of liveliness in the character interactions? This has a lot to do with the acting and directing, but a lot of it comes from the script. And as I've said, I've already used this method in a script of my own, so it's clearly a lesson that I'm taking from this film. Second, I admire the way this screenplay handles the intercutting of different realities. It does this on two levels. First are the different realities represented by the different timelines, with the different timelines having different tones. But second, the different endings are also different realities. The script does an excellent job of balancing these two endings, intercutting between them, but never confusing the audience on what is happening. Clearly, not every story needs to balance different story threads like this one does, but if I ever find myself writing such a story, I'll look back to this screenplay as a model. Third, I like the way that Joe's ultimate mission emerges in this script. Her desire to be an author is introduced in the first scene, and it's present in many of the past scenes but she abandons it for much of this movie, only to return to it at Beth's request. It's nicely handled, as is the way that Beth, Amy, and Friedrich all push her toward being the author she should be. Plus, of course, we see the ways in which all the past scenes provide her with material. So that is well done, how the story tells of someone having a goal, abandoning the goal, and then achieving it. And that's Little Women. As always, I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I did, and I hope you've learned something interesting. Next week, I'm going to cover Get Out, the 2018 horror film and winner of the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Until then, check out Storylanes.com to see the detailed analysis of Little Women, to find the script that I used, and to read a copy of the script of this episode. This is Joe Jakevich of the Storylanes podcast. Talk at you later. <laughs>